welcome to episode 273 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. Today's show coming from the Batcave in Jason's house in Pasadena. Um, not too much of a great day outside, a bit rainy. Um, hey, Jason. Well, it's great to be recording the show in the Batcave. Yeah, I hope the audio works out. You don't think there's going to be a lot of uh, echo because of the hardwood floors? Um, it should be fine because these mics ha- have a really close range. Okay. All right, yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah, this is our first show from the Batcave. It's our first show ever from your, your place, yep. So what's... Uh, this is where it all happens. Right. right this As is where say, it happens. Right? Yeah, that's <laughs> true. So uh, what do you want to talk about? Well, um, we could talk about... Well, what about the, the uh, Justin's interesting links? But also, if you want to, we could go straight into some news about Disco. Let's. I got some stuff I want to talk about. Unless these links are like super interesting, if they're just random selections off, it's of, gonna be random selections. Of things, but I thought we were gonna do, but that's fine. I, I, I only want to talk about stuff you're really interested in. If it's just mildly curious thing you happen to see on Cacker News, not so interesting. Huh? Because I'm just interested. I'm actually interested in what you have to say about stuff that I find mildly interesting. All right, <laughs> but that's okay. That's fine. That's, but 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 we'll go ahead. We'll, go ahead. we'll get to that. Well, then first of all, I'll start with um, I'll start with Disco because I think you'll find that interesting. Okay. So. Worked with Lance and Joanna, and um, we have been working on that for a while. So Disco, for anyone who's new, is your side project. We're going to do, we won't do the yeah. whole thing. You've been working with Lance and... It's tra- yeah, Lance and Joanna. And basically, it's a, it's a tool to allow people to get to put a widget on their site that it's a combination of a survey. It's like a pop-up survey, and then it gives them a discount, a growing discount with every question they answer. And the idea is, is that it helps shopping cart abandonment issues. Right, and, and it, it, kind of, it kind of went... It kind of stalled out for a while because of various things right the baby being born yeah. and then joanna had a bunch of conferences she was speaking at and you know that well, you guys kind of went quiet for a couple months there right right so we did the first iteration which basically had canned questions and that was the only thing that you could do you could just choose canned questions then that was working we went out to a few beta testers got some interesting results then baby happened and there was uh, some silence, and then Joanna and Lance went on big um, conference circuit. Yeah. But then there was, I guess, maybe a month of kind of silence, and then we got... That was longer than that. Maybe even longer than that. No. So then we got back together, and um, they said, okay, so the people that we've spoken to, the really important thing is is that it needs, at least you can create custom surveys. So you can just completely create your own answers, whatever. So yeah. then I worked on that for, I guess, a month mm-hmm. dur- during the whole kind of period that uh, Jack was... Uh, just just around, so I would do a couple of hours every night. Jack is your baby's name, so yeah. everybody put that those two together. Okay. <laughs> so I spoke to Lance yesterday, and um, so the feedback is is that every time he goes out to people, it's it, it initially it was it was a kind of a bootstrap thing. You know, bootstrappers could use it, but then we tried it with them, and there wasn't really enough traffic, so it needed to be bigger and bigger people. So now we're at the phase where the people who are interested in it are larger companies but it has nowhere near the number of features that they want yeah see (laughs) yeah i mean that's always the conundrum i guess is the problem with going after bootstrappers is bootstrappers don't have any damn money you know bootstrappers really are going to be very limited in their budget and willing what they're going to spend money on well i think so and and, sorry no i I didn't mean that sorry i I misspoke if, if that's how i came across I meant we were going to bootstrap it in that small, a small level, like a 50 bucks a month kind of concept for people who had sales blogs and things like that, who had okay. sales sites. And so the value was that it was going to 
allow them to, you know, get the discount out there. But as it turns out, the more and more people that Lance speaks to, um, it, it, it just doesn't offer that much value out the gate because they kind of have to discount their product. What it seems to offer more value to is larger enterprise businesses that have thousands of sales where it's really worth, really worth discounting and getting that data back from thousands of sales. Right. And there's already, com- there's already a lot of competitors out there that you just do the survey part. Right. So basically, the decision kind of now is, do we go for another six months with me developing things with the hope that it might work with these big enterprise sales? And you know how long enterprise sales take. Yeah, enterprise sales cycles right? pretty so, much suck. Or do we just say, okay, sunk cost fallacy. So, sorry. Yeah, sunk cost fallacy. Yeah. Just like sunk cost cognitive bias. We've been chopping in this forest. Yeah. Should we, uh, you know, is, is there any point continuing to chop in this forest or should we just axe this and just move on to a different idea? Right. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's no reason. I mean, if you were starting out right now and you're like, I can build anything in the world or exactly within your capabilities, build a mobile app, web app, you could build a game, you could build a social network, you could build productivity tools, you could build anything. Is this the thing that you think has the greatest opportunity for you guys? Especially if you want to, if you feel like your best shot is leveraging the skill sets of the three of you, which might be a really good thing to do. I mean, you, you, as you said, you know, you really like working with them. Um, you know, I know from firsthand experience that they're great people. And, you know, we know they're very competent in, in, in the things that they do. So they're a very good complement for you. So if you can figure out something to build that can utilize your respective skill sets. I think the, the thing is, I find myself very frustrated at this point because I feel like I've been here and done this a number of times, basically created a complete polished product and then not move forward with it. And what I've, what, I, what I'm, <laughs> yeah, hey, am I very <laughs> like reminiscent any, of any foo? Yeah. It's like it's any foo again. It's right? very pretty. I mean, it's I have to say, pretty. I looked at it. And I'm like, wow, this looks like a real well, the d- product. I mean, this looks like a. It's it's. I mean, it's done. It's ready to go, but it's going to take a crap load of work to really get it anywhere. So, and but the the difference between this and any foo is like this time I have done a lot of work, you know, a lot more work than, well, they, they've done a lot of that kind of initial seed work. Um, but just the, the person who's been working for the last four months on this is me. You know, I've been working every night, two hours, like trying to make this happen. So I feel super frustrated <laughs> after, <laughs> after yeah. making such a great polished product. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's, <laughs> there's seeds of scalability in it. Like all the, it, it has all the right stuff in there. Cause you know, all the things that you learned from things that you've built, recently whether it was but it's like plug all the tech stuff all the, all the tech stuff all the css stuff like it's beautifully responsive like it's a beautiful working ready to go product but it's unvalidated and any was just not ready just in that similar kind of position the, it wasn't so it was a bit worse because you had put in so much work so that wasn't good and then Plugio, I feel like, was in a similar position, and I had put in a crap load of work to that. And once again, it's this, it's this market validation piece that I feel like I just need to take a step back and say, I'm not building anything else for the rest of my life until I have absolute certainty that there is a market 
that there's a pain point <laughs> that it's validated that they've seen mock-ups you know i i just i'm done doing like the building of the tech first it's like so irritating it really is you know um <laughs> like and you've done it with app ignite you know you've done it with any food done it, yeah i mean and on a m- multiple different products we do it partially because we want to do it that way and the reason we want to do it is because we want to build stuff and we get yeah. really excited about building yeah. stuff and so we're very easily persuaded mm-hmm. that the business is going to work and then then we just set ourselves up to say okay all I need to do is build this great piece of technology and it's going to be a slam dunk. And, uh, you know, we're not as skeptical as we should be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's interesting, uh, of a similar story, a really good friend of mine, Jack, who plays on my soccer team, we've been friends for 15 years and he's, um, he's been in, uh, he's managed bars and restaurants for the entire time he's been in the U S he's actually from Brazil. And one thing he's doing now is he's built out, he, he built out a lot of expertise in inventory management. So a lot of these bars and restaurants, they order a lot of alcohol and they don't really keep very good close, very close track of what they need to reorder, how much they're using on a regular basis. So they end up buying w- way too much of stuff that they don't need. They don't buy enough of what they do need. They lose a lot of money in um, bartenders and uh, servers overpouring for drinks, and and so they and in a lot of these bars and clubs, they operate on very thin margins. And so, if you make them more efficient uh, from an inventory perspective, you can turn it something if you mild you can turn a business that's mildly uh, unprofitable to very profitable. Mm-hmm. So he's developed a lot of expertise in that. So he called me. Uh, the other day. So, and, and, and just to give you a background, so he's he built out a really intricate um, Excel spreadsheet um, over a number of years to manage the inventory systems for the bars that he managed. Mm-hmm. He developed a, really good at. It. I was really impressed by the stuff he had done, and and uh, so he's like, you know, I think I'm going to do this as a business, as a sort of a consulting company. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, we were talking about it cause he's had all these other entrepreneurial ideas. And I'm like, I think this is your ticket because you've talked to people, we've talked to, you know, a ton of people who own these bars and restaurants. Um, and you know, this business, Yeah. you know, how it creates value, you know how to implement it and you can charge enough money that all you need is a handful of clients and you're, you can replace your day job. That's to me, sounds like a really good thing to go after. And so we've been talking, so we'd sit around after the soccer games and he'd be like, here's what I've done. This is what I'm doing. And I would give him advice and I'd be like, dude, do the simplest possible thing to get up and going. Don't spend too much time on the technology. Just build something, get a client and then get two or three clients. He already had that spreadsheet. He was, he could be ready to go with it. Yeah. He needed more than that, but yeah, he had that basis for it. But you know, you need to, you need to supply, there were things he needed to do in terms of getting data in and in terms of generating the right kind of reports, et cetera. Yeah. But I kept telling him, look, Focus on just getting clients and getting getting the least amount of technology in place that you can serve those clients because they don't have anything there. Mm-hmm. You can you can start saving them a few thousand dollars a month even if you feel like your technology is ten percent of the way there. You may have to do a lot of stuff manually at first. That's fine. You know if you're using if you're doing stuff in yeah. Excel and Google Docs and whatever, and you're doing this and it takes you three or four hours a day manually doing stuff, then you just do that at first. But don't go and spend six months trying to build, learn how to program the right way and build all this technology, et cetera. So he calls me uh, with the latest update. Sandy and I are driving to Vegas to visit her parents for, for Thanksgiving. <clears throat> and he calls me and he's like, hey, listen, so 
let me ask you about what do you think? And he starts talking about these other ideas about like, well, if I had this kind of analytics and this kind of information, and I'm like, Jack, stop, 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 stop. Okay, imagine that in any startup, you have one product guy or girl and one sales marketing person, okay? And those two people are constantly going to be fighting back and forth about what to do. The marketing salesperson wants to sell something now. They're like, can I go sell it now? Can I get to clients? The product person is like, no, 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 wait, hold, hold, hold. We got to work. I just got to add these three more features. Okay. When those two people are in balance, you got a good shot. Now, early off, if the marketing person goes out and sells a bunch of stuff and you have no technology, you might get some money in at first because they might be really good at sales. And you'll get a little bit of money at first, but we very quick before... It won't be very long before the clients will just cancel the contracts and you guys will be out of business. Now, if you have somebody who goes out and builds all kind of technology and he and the technology person is more strong-willed and you spend six months with the technology and then guess what? You're out of time. Built the wrong thing. You built the wrong thing or you're out of yeah. time. Yeah. You're like, hey, that's great that you got the technology, but it's been six months. I got to get a job now. Mm-hmm. So you really need to have those two imbalances. I said, but those two people are in your head. And right now, the, the tech guy is kicking the marketing guy's ass. And that's how you're going to fail. So really what you need to do is ask yourself each and every week, are these two people, are they, are they sort of in harmony? <laughs> are, they kind of, are, they, are they kind of at stalemate? Like, well, the marketing sales guy would, would love to be able to sell a little bit more, but they have something to sell and they can live with it. The tech guy would like to have another month to add this feature and fix these bugs, but they, they can give you something even if they're a little unhappy about it. That's where you need to be. And I said, just think about that every week. Who's winning that war? I love that. That's great advice. That would make a great, a great uh, blog. Uh, really, yeah. really nice advice. It was funny talking to him because it, it kind of really illustrated it for him. He's like, yeah, that's a good point. I just said, I said, now if you if you go through and you feel like you know, if I had to be honest with myself, the marketing person is gonna is is gonna be sitting on the in his chair just really angry. Like that's a bad sign, or vice versa. Just you know, and and I said, look, I. Go through that. And I said, the other thing, and this is actually something Sandy said, because Sandy was overhearing the conversation <laughs> in the car. She's like, he needs to set a goal, a weekly goal. And you get one new customer a week. So you have one, just try, or maybe every two weeks or something like that. Try and get one customer every two weeks. And, you know, do something like have these goals, but then keep, keep an idea of where's the marketing guy, how's the marketing sales guy feeling about things? And how's the product the tech guy feeling about things? I think that's great. I think that's great. And it's, it's especially great once you're in that position when you have a market and you have a product idea. I think that's great. The piece that I feel very frustrated about and the piece that I've decided I'm going to focus the next three months really focus on is I want to become an expert in researching and, valid, researching and validating business ideas and markets. Like, as, as much of an expert as I can. So basically, I'm just, because I think the, the problem is, you remember that, that thing you always used to say about like you, where you start on the map is, is important? Like, you know, it's kind of part of the sunk cost fallacy thing. So if you're in Glendale, maybe you should be, you know, moving to Venice and starting there kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You remember that analogy you used? So I feel like that, that is a really important analogy, this whole sunk cost fallacy. And where you start out is so critical. Like, it's just a huge deal. Like, so with Plugio, it kind of, if there was like an epicenter that I was going for to start out with that place, that place that had a market with a pain point and a product market fit kind of concept, like Plugio was, you know, 15 miles away, (laughs) you know? Right. And like Disco is like maybe 10 miles away. 
what I was reminded of was Amy Hoy, who she does this course called 300 by 500. It's 300 X 500, sorry, 30 by 500, 30 X 500.com. And uh, I remember I had done the, like she'd sent me her first kind of PDFs and she has this thing like called sales safari. And it's, you kind of go out, you find niches and markets and you look through the forum and you look at what people are talking about and you can really see the pain that those people are feeling. And then you, you go away and you kind of think, okay, well, look at, these are the different pain points. What are maybe 10 to 20 different product ideas that, that could come out of those pain points to kind of solve those pains. And then you create a pitch against each of those product ideas and the best pitch that you really believe has the best idea you mock up and then you present that to the market and you say okay now are you ready to go for it and then you, you kind of build it from that point so i think that there's a lot of science about this about discovering what idea you should be working on. and i want to get to know it a bit more <laughs> you know i mean i think it's kind of common sense i think it's one of those things it's just hard to do it's like it's like losing weight Right. You know what to do. Exercise more and, and, and eat less. You know, there's different ways to eat less. There's different ways to exercise. There are more efficient ways to do it, right? Um, but it's just hard getting your butt out the door and doing it. And it's hard not to eat the wrong foods or to eat more of the right foods, right? Okay. It's hard. So how does that relate to? Well, I mean, what you need to do is you look in areas. I mean, essentially, you have to be aware of of of, of areas in the world that have problems, right? It's hard to walk into a part of the world, I don't mean geographically, but, you know, just whatever part of the world, and not know anything about it and start solving problems, right? You yeah. need to be acquainted with it. Well, well so you make a good point with your, about your friend Jack. Like, it makes sense for him to do that because that's his domain. And that's something that Amy Hoy would say is, like, yes, you can look at all sorts of other domains, but just focus on your domain. What are you? So, for example, I'm a, I'm a father, I'm a PHP developer, I'm a CTO, you know, those are all the different markets and domains that I already belong to. It makes way more sense for me to do that than to, than to look at uh, billing, two, two billing, manufacturers. Soft, billing software for dentist software. Exactly, yeah. That makes the other thing, too, is it's, it's really hard to stay motivated about a problem that you really don't give a crap about. You know? And if it's, if it's a world that not, you're not really acquainted with, it's just tough. And because it's fundamentally boring to you, right? Like... You know how you always just say that like investing and trading is boring to you? You find that just boring? So if you said, well, if I said, oh, well, you know, there's a way to make money, we build some trading software, you'd be, you might be able to get initially excited because I was enthusiastic and I got you excited. I think we can make a lot of money. But after a while, if it took longer to make money than you expected, you would get really bored and want to bail. I really love that you brought out that example because I have literally been wanting to talk to you about exactly that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because I, I put down some cash on the stock market and I made 1500 um, in a month. Yeah. And it made me think, oh, this is kind of interesting. And <laughs> so now you're interested in it. I'm, I'm especially interested. In, so can we circle back to this discussion? Because I want to sure. ask you something about sure. it. Sure. Okay. So anyway, we're, we're continue where you're going. Yeah, we'll go back to it. So yeah. but the other thing is, I would say is, and this is something that I, this is a blog post I've been meaning to write for like four years, I guess, but it's called Beware of Your Enthusiasm Half-Life. Right, yeah, okay. So we each have an enthusiasm half-life or in a sense that we each have, some of us can maintain enthusiasm for three days, some of us can maintain it for three years. Most of us has probably like six to 12 weeks, which means you, you can purely run off of enthusiasm before it starts to draw down without any sort of external validation, be it <laughs> yeah. money or yeah. usage, right? How long can I just work on this thing just because I'm excited about it and I've talked myself into believing that's going to be a big deal? 
Okay. And us entrepreneurs, technologists probably have a greater capacity to do that than other people, partially because we're just naturally optimistic, but also because we just enjoy the process of building stuff and want to keep, we kind of want to finish a thought. But if you keep doing, working on something for a long time and there's no like money coming in, eventually you're just like, ah, screw this. So what I'm, the point is, A, you have to, you need to pick something you're naturally, you have to pick something you're sort of having an interest in, you know? People overuse the word passion. I think most people would say they're passionate, they're not really passionate about it, or they're mm-hmm. interested in it for the time being, for the six months or a few years or whatever. People are passionate about something or something they usually spend a lifetime doing, or at least a portion of their life doing, 10 or 15 years, not, you know, two years and then they sell their company. Yeah, hey, you're passionate about music. Yeah, there's people who are just passionate. But the people who are like, I, I find this, this is an interesting problem. Mm-hmm. I can do this, you know. So if you find something you're interesting, as an interesting problem for its own sake, you would read a book on it, multiple books on it just for you to keep bringing up a conversation with people because you want to talk about it. That's something you should. So going yeah. to be building software for a dentist's office, unless you make money off that really damn quick, you're gonna be like, holy crap, this is boring, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know? So, but really what it comes down to after that, beyond that is um, going and talking to people and being aware that there's a problem that be their clients or customers are like, you know, I'd pay for that. Are you, you see, yourself are, are one of the- I don't know. I don't try, like, because that's what I feel like I've done. And I feel like that doesn't work. I feel like I like the forum idea and, and retrospectively looking at discussions and conversations people have had through forums and Twitter, et cetera, to sit, because people kind of want to make you happy, you know? They kind of want to say what you want to hear in many, in many ways, in many times. And they'll kind of be like a little bit more, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. Oh, I totally have that pain. You know, oh, yeah. Oh, I would totally buy that, you know. And then it comes down to it and you kind of like. Well, what uh, what Jason Cohen, I remember he said at one talk or something was that, at least for WP Engine, I think he went around and and said, would you write a check for this right now if I built this? Yeah. Pre-validation. If people were not really willing to write a check. I'm assuming you're selling it to businesses. Yeah, yeah. Particularly, assuming that it's something that people pay for. You say, I won't cash it, but would you write it until it's time or I'll give your money back if we don't launch or whatever. Yeah. But if you're not willing to write a check, then it's not really. I guess it's like your own personal little uh, Kickstarter. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And if you if if nobody's really willing to write a check or deposit or whatever, then, you know, maybe maybe it's not they're not that serious about it. And I don't know, like it's, you talk about like people get excited about stuff like, you know, you're saying in person, people are enthusiastic will be overly uh, enthusiastic because their friends are going to be supportive as opposed to me. Of course, I'll just, I'm just, I'll, wor- I'll shoot it down. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just worried. It's like not, not enough of a numbers game. So, so like every time I've started a business, it's been through thinking up the best, you know, the best idea that I felt like I could think of maybe with you or whatever, but I've never really taken this approach of, of like getting 20 ideas, 20 or 30 ideas and, and picking the best. Yeah, well, because on a you're a technologist, what happens is every time I've talked to you, and I think this is pretty much the case with most of us most of the time, you come something occurs to you as, as, as an idea or a technology. You just do. start building it. And, and even if you start building, you start thinking about it. You build yeah. it in your mind. It's in your mind, you yeah. You get excited about it. You tell your wife. Yeah. You want friends. You come over and tell one of your friends. It's not, there's no real weighing against 10 other ideas. No. You, and then you come and ask me, like, Jason, what do you think? Just like yeah. you did with an idea right before we started the show. Mm-hmm. You know, which... I actually did shoot down. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, I'm most people will be honest with you and say, I, if I think it's a good idea, you've approached with ideas I thought were better than others. 
But it's like if you came, that's what I always say. If like if you're testing out a name, come to someone and say, here are 10 names. Which one do you like best? Not do you like this name? Yeah. You know, and that's what you've done to me a few times. When it was disco was one of them. You had a whole list of names and I was like, disco is it, man. Like that one's good. Yeah. That was much, that was much better. If you just come to me and said, do you like this name or not? I might, it's hard for me to say, I don't know. It's just, it's hard. It's harder for people to be honest about it. But I, I just think that a lot of people work on stuff. I mean, there's, there's, I know I'm kind of saying the same thing again, but like there is like most people that we speak to just fall into the same, the same thing of just like building stuff before you have validated it. But you know, it's also hard to, people don't know what's going to work. I mean, like take Uber for an example, Travis, you know, it's funny. He, I, he, I didn't have this conversation about it. So I don't know how much he pre-validated or not. I heard in some interview or something that he did pre-validate it. He did make a bunch of phone calls. Some people hung up on him. And some people were like, yeah, I'd use it. Like, I think he said he, he made a bunch of, I, I didn't hear the interview. I heard like secondhand the interview or somebody yeah. counting it or something. But, um, you know, but I wonder how many, I don't know. It, it's, it's like what you don't want people to do is go, do I think that's a good business? Because I don't think many people at the time would have thought Uber was going to be a big deal. I don't think many people thought Airbnb was a big deal or Dropbox. Any of the major multi-billion dollar startups at this time, people wouldn't have thought, you know, Dropbox, there are a million of these file sharing sites already had been around. Yeah. Airbnb, people thought it was silly. Nobody could get... They could, well, I don't think I want to build that kind of business. Like, that's those those are the, the kind of shoot for the moon kind of businesses. Well, I'm not talking... What I'm saying is, you don't. one thing you don't want to do is ask people what's a good business idea. No, I know, I'm not suggesting know. that. I'm not suggesting that. Yeah, but... I'm suggesting you do research, you find... You find your niche and you look at online discussions and then, and then work it out from that. You reverse engineer their discussions. Maybe. But then what you have to do is once you have an idea is you need to approach people and say, would you pay for this? Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly. the real question. Not like, do you think other people would use it? It's bad question because yeah. nobody knows. People can only answer for themselves. No, I agree. So, so, go, so go around do, doing this kind of research within your domain on forums or are places where people talk online. Like, for example, I'm a member of the CTO forum, you know, I was looking through that forum and looking through the pains and and pain points that people had. And it all seemed to be around finding talent, you know, talent was one of them. And another one was like validating decisions. (laughs) So, um, but I think that, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a father and I know that there's lots of father forums out there and, you know, I'm a, I'm a diabetic and I know that there's diabetes forums out there. So I think that those, but the part that I don't quite understand yet is how to, go into that, look at that data and make true sense of it. Well, I mean, that's what Eric Reese's, you know, lean startup stuff is all about. Just read his book. I mean, that's sort, yeah. of, the, that's sort of the Bible on that, right? Uh, right. I don't know. I didn't uh, read that. But, um, but you're familiar with his book, right? I am familiar with his book. But I, well, the point I'm trying to make is I don't just want to do that once. Like, I want to do that a hundred times. Like, what? I want to get really good at that. Okay. Because to me, that seems to be the absolute weakness of everything I've tried to do. So, ergo, I should be I should become an expert at that thing that I'm really bad. We at. need to become more of an entrepreneur, less of a technologist, at least first, right? Initially, just make just just making the decisions, and you know, in many ways, it seems like that may even be a business potential in its own right because I can't be the only person with that problem. But um, yeah, anyway, so that's kind of where I'm thinking. Okay. Yeah. So. Well, you know, um, that's. So you good. want to circle around to your investment. You, you said you put some money, some money in. Yeah, I do. Now I wanna, all of a sudden you're interested in it. I, I, well, I am interested in it, yeah. Okay, so. <laughs> so making money got you interested. But it, 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 it really did. It really did. And I, I'm, I'm sure that 
it's the same as with my house. Like I just, I think I just bought the house at the right time and sold it at the right time to make some money. <clears throat> so with the investment, um, I just happened to find out about Motley Fool, uh, and I looked at it and I was like, okay, I'll give this a shot. So I put 10,000 in it, actually 9,000. I just, I just bought their kind of top stocks that they recommended. And I looked back in a month later and it had gone up by one and a half thousand. I'm like, okay, I'm going to lock that in. <laughs> Sell it. I just, I just sold. I'm like, I'm going to lock that in because anything could happen right now. And that's a lot to have gone up, you know, so I'm just going to lock it in. I haven't really paid any more attention to it. But what it has made me think is it made me start investigating and thinking about algor- algorithmic trading, the kind of stuff that you do. And I have, the question I have for you is, why wouldn't this concept work? So I'm going to tell you this concept. Like, why, why does this seem like this would totally work? And tell me why I'm completely wrong. So using neural, a neural net and basically machine learning, why couldn't I take, create a thousand different bots that basically, and throw different parameters at each of them and just get them to play with the market with a specific stock or whatever. So each one just kind of does this machine learning based on this, oh, if it's an X, Y chart thing, and that happens two times in a row, then buy, you know? And then if this hap- if, if a fall happens, the, the 1% then sell, you know? So just create all of these different machine learning bots and then race them against each other, see the ones that are the most profitable, right? And you could, you could either use simulated money or you could just put 10 bucks on each or whatever, I don't know. And then you just find the ones that are the most profitable, pick those and say, oh, okay, these, these two horses are winning the race. Put a hundred bucks on each of those, watch that work. And then if they go down, look for some other ones that come up and just basically have a hundred bucks on each one of these, these things. And whoever has kind of in profit, put your money there and then put it into the, move it to other ones. Why wouldn't that work? Uh, nothing says it wouldn't work. I mean, um, <coughs> and in fact, I will bet you there are plenty of hedge funds that are doing something roughly equivalent to that. Um, so you could easily say, start out with, so Kind of what you're describing is um, an evolutionary approach yeah. of neural net. So you, you, so what you would do is you could. Uh, it didn't, a neural net doesn't have to be the um, the sort of a machine learning uh, algorithm, or you know, you could have support vector machines. You could have all kind of other things. But let's just say a neural net is what you're going to use, right? So neural net represents some decision making algorithm that takes in various inputs the average stock price and certain ups and downs and whatever. You could have all kinds of different features representing the market, current market state and the market context and what's happened over some period of time. Okay. And it's output are buy and sell XYZ stock. Right. And you could have a population of a hundred of them or a thousand of them and they trade against each other. They compete. And you say, okay, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the top seven of this hundred and they're going to go through many generations of sort of evolving in this one. The, the, the best ones sort of combine and mix their parameter sets a little bit. You know, you could do something like that. There was something um, similar to that in, um, there was a book I've talked about on the show called Blondie 24. Where it's about, and we interviewed David Fogel, who wrote that book, about how he evolved checkers playing algorithms, neural nets, to become a grandmaster checkers player playing program. And it was neural nets playing against playing checkers against one another over and over and over and over for months. <laughs> this is back like 15 years ago using like a Pentium 3 or whatever, but that's what he did. But you clearly just put the stuff on EC2 and spin up some instances, run it for a few hours and boom. But he did that successfully for stocks. 
I mean, for honestly, for checkers, but nothing to say that you couldn't do that for stocks. But there's a lot of things that you'd have to really think about to make sure you do it right. I mean, there's, there's lots of mistakes that people make. Like, for instance, you say, well, you know, it did well. You could evolve something to do really well over some over the last three weeks, and it optimizes how what would have been the best way to trade Apple over the last three weeks. Well, what you really want to do is then it goes forward the next week, and the next week is completely different, and so it completely fails because maybe it was the, the market was kind of flat for three weeks, and now we went kind of it, it's, it's a bullish market or it's went an bullish market. or whatever, and yeah. it's a different kind of market. So there's all kind of different things that you need to do in terms of like. Um, moving the window, the training and the validation window Back forward, checking, yeah. and you need to detrend your, your prices because, you know, the price is then going to be $38 and this week it's in the forties. And so things are different. So you need to detrend the data. You need, there's lots of little things you could do, but I could clearly explain to you, I could give you like a boot camp and say, here are the five or 10 things you want to do first. <laughs> here's where you get the data. Here's how you want to detrend it. Here's how you want to get some good smart features out of it. Here's how you want to make sure it's it's a robust um, model. Here's how you want to compete. I mean, you could do it. It'd I be mean, a the, fun thing to do. It's fun. It's a fun thing to do. The thing I like about it is it doesn't require any marketing. Knowledge. It just requires the, the expertise and knowledge that I already have, which is building shit, right? <laughs> well, you can see why. Well, you can see what the allure is. Yeah. Right? Because it's this really hard problem. Yeah. You don't have to deal with with customers. Yeah. And um, you get just and you get to play with all kind of really cool algorithms and machine learning stuff and playing with data and uh, and if you win you make if it works it makes money. It's cool. I mean, I think it's a good. I think it's a fun hobby. Mm -hmm. I think it's either a good hobby or if you work for a comp a, a fund like a hedge fund that has you know hundreds of millions of dollars in the management and they're like and you and you work in and, and it, for that fund developing models. But if you're like trying to do it with your own money and you're really trying to make money off it, I think it'd be pretty stressful. But if you said, all right, you know what? I got $200,000 in our portfolio retirement stuff. I'm going to take 10 out mm. as my, is what I'm going to use for this stuff. Okay. That's fine. You know, um, although I think though to we'll do what they call it. If you're just doing end of day trading. Like you'd only trade at the at the beginning at once once a day. Like you didn't trade multiple times. Day trading, day, yeah. Day trading, you have to have at least the, the you have to fall under a term of the SEC terms of pattern day trader, and, and you have to have like thirty or forty thousand dollars in the account. Um, like you can day trade pattern day trade with seven thousand dollars. Hmm. But if you're like, well, I'm just gonna run to my bots at night. They spit out a trade, a couple of trade recommendations in the morning. I wake up, I go and I log into Fidelity or Trade, and I put on my one two trades. I trade once or twice a week based on that. Otherwise, it just kind of, because it might just say hold the position. That's yeah. where you would start. That's where you'd start. Yeah. And It'd be fun. Uh, I mean, if, if you had money and you're like, you know, I just want to build stuff. It would stuff, be fun, I'm, right? I'm, it would be fun. Especially if you're a little burnout, right, on the whole, like. But have you, so have you ever done, I mean, you in all the algorithmic trading stuff that you've done, have you ever done anything like this? I've, the unfortunate part is I've done, I've spent most of my time building around it building all of the technology to develop the real-time infrastructure. I see, yeah. Um, I built a lot of the libraries. I did a lot of the, uh, um, I built a lot of the testing infrastructure and the simulators and the tick data, all the stuff. It's really hard to do when you're talking about trading uh, algorithmically and you're trading to the, sub, the millisecond time frame. Right. It's much, 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 much easier. It's like two orders of magnitude easier if you're like, hey, I'm just going to run a script at night 
and just like download pulls in a bunch of data from Yahoo or or one of these low cost data feeds and run some stuff on it. I mean, that's that would be easier. But I mean, I have done some of it, but I spent ninety percent of my time over the years that I did it building all the real time infrastructure, which is what allowed me to build the stuff for Uber, right? And have you ever seen? Yeah, that makes sense. And have you ever seen anyone? be successful at this kind of like you know th- this algorithmic like creating these multiple agents approach yeah yeah so you seem so, so yeah it, but you know they are not a crazy for, idea then it's yeah. not a crazy idea I, I i i would so what you want to do is trade only an amount that you would doesn't stress you out hmm. so if you're like you know if you're if, if ten thousand would stress you out maybe three thousand you're like you know what if i make or lose because you're not gonna lose everything yeah but if i burn through this in the next three years like it slowly diminishes but I would have learned a lot and it had been really, really fun. Yeah. That's where, like, you're like, oh my God, I lost $200. And you, like, have a, their whole evening is, you're in a bad mood because you lost $200. Then don't do it. If don't like, do it. Yeah. If exactly. you're like, $200, I mean, it's going to make $200. It's going to make it. It's going to make or lose, whatever. That's the right number. But one thing I was thinking is you could do it, you could trade um, cryptocurrencies. Yeah. You know, yeah. You could trade. Because, because you know what's great about them? The volume and the, um, because, I've, Obviously, having done a little bit of research in this, right, you know, before this discussion, which is kind of rare for me, mm-hmm. um, volume is important and volatility is important, mm-hmm. right? So you need a lot of volume and you need a lot of volatility, especially if you're going to do something like this where you want a bot to try and make some cash for you. And nothing has, like, more volatility than cryptocurrency. Like, it's well, just you all over to, the place. The thing is, and you don't have to set up an account at a brokerage and be wor- and worried about... Um, uh, ta- I, well, I guess you, you ultimately theoretically supposed to worry about taxes on but cryptocurrencies. But you get a percentage, like you lose a. You, you could trade. You could have hundred dollars. Yeah, you exactly. Hundred dollars, yeah, yeah. and you could be trading in ten satoshi units or fifty yeah, satoshi exactly. units. Yeah, You can do it as small as you want. Yeah. Nickels and dimes. You can't do that with stocks. Yeah. You know, and you could say, well, you know, that that might be a, a way to um, break into it. To say, I'm going to take a hundred dollars, or I'm going to buy one bitcoin, and I'm going to trade that back and forth. I'm going to trade Bitcoin or I'm going to, or I'm going to parcel that out. I'm going to trade some Litecoin and some Dogecoin or whatever the coins are now. And I'm going to trade those back and forth using different bots. If I could travel back in time, I, this is what I would partner with you on. I would say, fuck any foo. Let's do something that requires <laughs> no marketing and let's just like build something fun, build something fun that just makes money. That would be fun. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, know, I would, I would do, I could do some donkey work for that. You know, it's fun. Well, I tell you what, why don't, why don't you start, <laughs> um, why don't you, would you, would you rather start? I would say, you know, start, I wouldn't know where to start. That's the thing. I, I would start with just, you know, just trade uh, by trading Bitcoin on uh Cripsy or one of these other exchanges. Yeah. Well, I'm they already have, they on have API. They have a restful I'm API. already on, I mean, Coinbase, so I could just do Coinbase it. Coinbase isn't really a, a, a trading. Oh, okay. Format. Right. Yeah. But you, once you're Coinbase, you could train it into Cripsy or one of these other exchanges. They have a yeah. restful API. Yeah. You just, you're, you could, you have a PHP client. You just write, you know, buy and sell. Yeah, the, right? that's easy. That's easy enough to do. But like, how? Like, it's the pattern analysis side of thing. Because remember, I've already done this with Betfair in, in yeah, the yeah, UK. Yeah. So I I already tried this out. Like, I don't know, ten years ago with Betfair. There's Betfair, and so the way the way that it works is, um, that you do bet trading, like leading up to the 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 horses race or whatever, mm-hmm. and you can look at all the statistics about the horse and you know all this kind of stuff. So, but I didn't really, like you said, I had success because of curve fitting. You know, and then it would, and then it would kind of go down. So, what I would like to do if I was going to do this would be to understand how the, not to curve fit, how not to curve fit, how to 
build better, you know, al- you know, genetic algorithms that that can learn. I would love for you to speak because that'd be fun to talk about. Yeah, I mean, it, well, I think it'd be fun. I love this stuff. I think it's super fun. It's just, it's, it's, it's just, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just fun. Um, and the book I would read is Blondie Twenty Four. You could read it in like a day and a half. Hmm. It's about how they with the checkers play. Yeah, it's yeah. really because I think it's very analogous. It's very analogous, mm. and it would get you excited. Be like, oh, I could do that, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, because remember, I built that simulation as well. Do you remember I showed you yeah. that stock market yeah. simulation? Oh, I have but, no doubt you could do it. Yeah. I mean, and I have no doubt that. You, so, w- what you'd want to do is 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 um, build like a really yeah. stupid bot that just buys and sells randomly on Cripsy for a couple of days. Like, okay, I got that. I run it. <laughs> it buys and sells once a day or buys and sells three times a day. And it puts itself like, okay, I got that. Right. And then you're like, okay, next I want to do is come up with a list of what I, what you, what you would consider features of the data. Like whenever there's a big up move or whenever the average price or the volume or something, so you, you come up with ways of describing the data at a higher level than just looking at a bunch of a vector of like well, 100 isn't there like technical terms for isn't there like 40 ish kind of technical terms for like when when it does like a double v upside down although that's like? that's sort of chart stuff which i think for the most part is like astrology i don't think i mean there's a little bit of edge in terms of self-fulfilling prophecy okay but there are things that you can look at that i think would have some statistical significance. Like for instance, if when, when something that's been moving up um, and then has a slight pullback, you might say more often than not, it will bounce back a little bit. Mm. You might say, look, if we're looking back when there's an up move or we're an overall uptrend over a period of like three weeks, this is a general move market. And, and, and you say, well, you look at three months of data and you say, whenever in, in, we're in a bull market and whenever something drops 3% or 2%, Eight times out of ten, it's going to bounce back, bounce back at least half that amount, if not more. Mm. Say, okay, so how do I detect if that happens? Well, I need to have, I need to write an algorithm that says, is it is this a bull overall trend, uptrend, and then there's a pull down, and that would be just an indicator that that flag. So it's it like a falls. fuzzy pattern matcher. Yeah. So we so we kind of look through the data when that pattern happens at the kind of moment, the second that that pattern happens. Then it's like a trigger. We call it this a trigger. Happened. You could say this happened, or this is ninety percent true. This it's not. Yeah. Okay. Right, you could see this, you could grade the truthiness of any given situation. How is this? Is this a bull? Is this a? Are we in a high volume market? It's an eighty-seven percent high volume. Could we also like match that against sentiment, like from Twitter or yeah. from, oh, from news? So you can kind of pair this kind of concept that you're talking about with a sentiment concept concept. They go, okay, it's really about to drop yeah. you know, because there's so much negative sentiment out there. Absolutely. Absolutely. It could be fun. I mean, it's, it's, it's really neat. So I've got, I get emails about people wanting to get into algorithmic trading about, well, it varies. Like sometimes I had two last week and then I didn't have anything, you know, but then the previous three weeks I got nothing. And so people email periodically, like, I want to get algorithmic trading. I read your blog post about it. What should I do? Did you see, did you see that guy who's, who's, this is related, even though it seems mm-hmm. like a tangent. So this guy who's basically building a game from scratch and he's doing it on Twitch every day at 9 PM. Did you see that? No. And I like, so I, I, I looked at a couple of days and he totally started from, from beginning. Like he was just explaining C and pointers and then he's gradually getting into it. This is how you, you know, talk to the sound card, you know, and it's cool. There's always like a thousand people watching. What's Twitch? 
Oh, Twitch TV. So Twitch TV is what Justin TV became. So oh. basically Justin TV found their, found their niche and have monetized it to the point where they're kind of like a billion dollar valuation. Um, and basically what it is, is it's, it's, you know, that thing where people play, you know, what Colby watches all the time, people play computer Video games, games yeah. and they talk it, they talk it through yeah. while they're playing it. And then they upload the video. That's what Twitch is. It basically distributes that and it's doing incredibly well with the advertising. So it's like but, the voyeur yeah. marketplace. But, 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 th- but this guy is doing this educational thing and he has like a thousand people tuning in every night. Like, why don't you do that? I'll bloody tune in. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I, this was maybe last year, Christmas. Um, oh, I'm blanking on the guy's name. The guy who created Minecraft. Um, yeah. Notch. Yeah. He was going to work on some game. It was like for 24 hours or 48 hours straight or something like that. That was purely like a Christmassy themed game. Yeah. And it shows you work. And, he, and he's building it in um, like Rust or Dart or something like that. It was like, an, you know, so it could run in a browser or something. And I think that's what he did. And he was, again, it was just like that. He shows him kind of mumbling into himself. Oh, I'll try that. Oh, that didn't work very well. I don't ah, know ah, what's going on. Shows him debugging it and I'm yeah. it again and running yeah. it again. And it was fun to watch. <laughs> I watched it for a few hours. I was like, he was just kind of off the corner. I was coding and then he was kind of, oh, man, well, that doesn't work. And I'm watching him. That's code. exactly what this guy's doing. It's like, like, and you, was, you see him refactor. He's kind of thinking it through and he's refactoring it. And he's like, oh, you know, that actually, that was really a bad decision. I think I'll do it this way. So that was good because that's what people do, right? They they refactor as they yeah, go along. They make mistakes. They get to dead ends. I think it's um, it's it's a, it's fun to do. I mean, it's fun to watch. I could see how people would be into that. If there was one that taught me how to build how to build a kind of genetic stroke al- algorithmic trading system, I would probably do that right now. That sounds like a lot of fun. Um, it sounds like something that you could charge a lot for as well. Actually, like someone could if they wanted to do it. Yeah, well, you know, there are these things called these trading rooms where you'll have these expert traders. Will you can join their chat room and it will show their chart and where their buy and sell signals are and say we're going to buy now here because of X, Y, and Z reasons. And and so, like, let's say you're let's say that you're you wanted to start sort of day trading. And you're like, I don't even know what to look at. I don't even know what to look for. I don't know how to think about this. And so I say, all right, Justin, I'm this expert day trader. I make an average of a hundred thousand dollars a month. Well, that's because you're you're a foundational trader, but I want to be a technical trader. Right, right. I'm just saying. Yeah. Foundational trader. Yeah, that's what I. Fundamental. No, a fundamental trader. Yeah. So this this is another point. Like, there's the fundamental traders. There's the technical well, traders. Day traders, which are, is what I'm interested in. Day traders which is just are computer algorithm, quantitative or technical yeah. of some kind. I mean, um, fundamental. Of course, fundamentals don't change that often, so you don't tend. Fundamental to traders the basically they look at. Who's the CEO? Earnings, no, Who's earnings the CEO? Per share, What's the earnings per share? Yeah, What's the equity yeah, and yeah. estimates? And that's what Motley Fool is basically. Yeah, yeah. That's, it's not. It's not. You're not trading throughout the day. You're not looking at supply and demand and dynamics. But anyway, these trading rooms allow people who are new to the field of trading, and um, and they can watch somebody, and the person can explain how, how they're looking at the market, what they're looking for. And then when things happen, say, okay, well, you see this, the volume has gone up, see spiked up, we've been an overall uptrend, you see the th- two-day mo- moving averages here, or 10-day moving averages here, and this, but, you know, we're in a sudden drop, but as we've seen, every time it drops X amount, this time there's an 80% chance that we're jump. so we're going we're gonna to get in, we're going we're gonna to leg into this now. But we're going to put our stop here, and we're going to exit here. Oops, looks like we fired out, we're out. You know, and just kind of doing that. And so people can start following, and then they start to have a few tools that they can use. 
Um, and what's interesting, and I want to get too far into the trading stuff, but um, I, I read a million of these books on um, expert traders talking about how they traded, mm -hmm. um, which is just like, you know, these books you write about, like, you know, they interview the top programmers and they talk about, oh, I write C++, I write in Lisp, and this is what I do, and this is how I debug, and this is how I do, you know, same stuff with trading. And there's a, bun there's a bunch more books on trading, though. And um, what's interesting is that all of these traders use completely different tools and approaches, and they all poo-poo the tools that other people use. Yeah. They're like, I never trade ETFs. I only trade stock. I never trade stock. I only trade futures. Or I don't know how people trade futures. You can't make money that way. You have to trade this way. Or you have to do this or you have to do that. Or I can't trade intraday or I can't. You have to trade intraday. I mean, every, there wasn't anything that anyone ever agreed on to any real level. And these, these people were all successful. Kind of makes sense as well, because if you think about it, tell me if I'm wrong in saying this. When you win, someone else loses. Generally, a zero-sum, yeah, more or less. It's a zero-sum game, right? Mm -hmm. So that would kind of mean that people who well, are successful in one field... Well, would... yeah, I mean, that's true. But, but it's also, let's say that you... Um, okay, let's say that you and I are both... Uh, let's say you own Apple. <coughs> you bought it. Um, it goes up $10. You're like, whoa, I just made a lot of money. I'm going to sell it. I'm looking at Apple. I'm like, wow, it's going to go up. It's going up a lot. I'm going to get some. So you sell it. I want to buy it. It matches our orders. I buy it, and then I and then it goes up another ten dollars. I make ten more dollars. So, so you didn't so, lose money. So someone at the top, someone at the top, when it's going back down, they're losing money unless they're going short. Yeah, which I, still, I don't. Yeah, really but understand. of course, then they're selling. So, but I'm saying, but in that case, you made money, but then based on what you were thinking, you're out. You're, you captured a profit, and I'm and I'm going to buy some. So in a bull market, you know, it's not necessarily zero sum, but. What's interesting too is you have people at different time frames. You have people who are trading in, in you know, in within seconds. Yeah. And like, if I'm trading within the ten to fifteen minute time frame, what happens within inside of one second is noise to me. I don't yeah. care. It's yeah. less than a penny back and forth. Like I, I don't. I, this noise. So whether you're trading, I'm glad you exist. If you're trading in some second, because anytime I want to buy or sell, I can because you're there to buy or sell. Yeah. yeah. You're not really making. I'm not sensitive to the tenth of a penny. I'm trying to make twenty cents on a on a on a share. 10 cents on a trade. And I'm not trying to make a 10th of a penny. Yeah. Likewise, if someone is trading every three weeks and they're trying to make a few dollars per trade, or, you know, they're not going to be worried about what happens inside of five minutes on a Thursday. You know what I mean? They're just like, mm, it's too yeah. sensitive. And, and if you're, if you're managing a fund and you're trading, you trade once every six months, you, you're not sensitive to what this one guy is doing at a shorter period of time and th within a three week period of time, you see? So we're all trading at different time frames. And you're not really taking money for someone else. You, you're glad that the other one exists because they provide liquidity so that you, when you want to get in and out of the market, you can. It's not like buying or selling your house. It's like, I want to sell my house. Well, this is going to take six months and cost me a fortune. And I'm going to pay a huge in the bid-ass spread and fees. In, in stock, you just in and out one second. So is um, momentum trading when you see it going on an upsurge and it's like a wave that you catch quickly. You catch that wave at the beginning of the day and then you jump off at the end of the day and you've gone up. Is that momentum trading. Well, is it, that possible? Yeah. Yeah. Momentum, some people are momentum traders. Some people are, they short stuff. Some people are mean reversion. So it's like it always go back. It, it Generally, things go back to the mean. So when they, they look at something that's like a the average value, like so the mean value over some period of time or whatever it goes down too far, they'll buy it. Whatever goes up too high, they'll sell it. But if, well, the problem is if it goes against you too far, you're like, oh, crap. Like it starts dropping. You're like, ah, it's going to revert. You buy it. And then it keeps going down. You're like, oh, crap. Then you have to like, like sell it. Take your loss. 
because it's clearly this isn't a reversion point. This is gonna yeah. Anyway, anyway, so that that was what I wanted to talk to you about there. So that's fun. So we'll 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 talk a little bit more offline about that. Yeah, well, I think it would be fun. It sometimes you know you you know you're talking about the 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 um you know like in relationships you have like a rebound relationship. <laughs> You need a rebound project. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's like, you're not going to marry the bot trading project, <laughs> but it might be fun for a while, right? She's cute. She'll be fun. You have some good experiences. You know, I mean, like, you know, you, right now you're feeling a little burnt by disco. Not that it was its fault. You just feel like, ah, yeah. this didn't work out, Ron. and I got to rethink my approach to things. Okay. I'm just burnt by... Uh working on stuff that's just not validated yeah no, i understand yeah, and, yeah. and i think everybody listens and understands that so it's like yeah. take a break and say hey this would be cute i'm just, just for fun yeah you know and then i can get back to like my next mobile app or whatever and you know but this is it'd be a fun thing to just kind of like there's no there's, uh, there's no there's no time crunch there's no partners there's no nothing on the line there's no for fun yeah there's no marketing there's no it's just it's just me and Playing a keyboard around. and a uh, an input and an output. Yeah, what's all this genetic algorithm <laughs> crap that Jason keeps talking about? You know, right, let me just if I can build some little genetic algorithm that buys and sells Bitcoin. That would be kind of fun mm. for a few weeks. It'd be fun if we talk about. You'd learn. It some would be stuff. fun to talk about. Yeah, and then and then and then eventually be like, okay, all right, all right, I'm going to go validate this thing and build. Doesn't it. sound like it would be. Uh, we should probably stop talking about it. But I, I want to talk about it more. But I can see how we should stop talking about it now. So let's have lunch this week. <laughs> People want it. Okay. Um, well, any other key thing you want to say about it? Well, the thing that you described didn't sound like a genetic algorithm to me. The thing that you described like, sounded like it was doing a fuzzy match of what the chart was on. Is that, or is, is the genetic algorithm an, an abstraction from that that says, use that trigger. I learn, I learn when to use that trigger or not. Think about it this way. Think that was one trigger. Let's say that you had like 20 triggers. Yeah. And in an array in, in, of, of either true or false, this trigger is true or false. Yeah. Or, 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 or scale between zero and one, between how true it is or not. Like how, volume is, what is the volume? We rank the volume between zero and one. One means it's like it's the highest we've seen in six months. Zero means like just like practically the lowest volume we've seen, right? You understand what I mean? Yeah. So scalar. So you have an array of, it could be 10 or 20 or how many features you, you, you come up with. That is one uh, chromosome. We create a hundred of these chromosomes and we randomly um, assign, uh, w- you know, whether we're going to buy or sell given which one of these flags are true or false. Okay. So, and so it's kind of like a, 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 a mask, kind of a bitmap. Yeah. A, 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 a bit mask on each chromosome. And then we let those trade. And then the ones that do well, we recombine them into other ones. Or we so we so when they do well, do we, um, like from a neural net, do we use no- neural net? See, this isn't a neural net. We could have a neural net, which then takes in those parameters and decides whether. Okay, well, let's try it easier. So, neural net's more complicated, right? You just do a just same genetic algorithm. Just genetic algorithm. Okay. Okay. Great. You I, could you could write. I you could, totally want to do that. You could easily that do like that right fun. in JavaScript or PHP, um, whatever you, whatever you wanted to do. You just have the thing run. Basically, what you do if you did it, you could do if you did end of day, you just download the previous day's data, run it once, and it buys or sells once a day. Or each bot buys and sells one. So it's like, let's say I have a hundred bots running, well, but and with, each one has uses one tenth or one one hundredth of my Bitcoin. Well, you can go far. You can go faster with um, Bitcoin, right? We can we can do it 
in smaller increments in the day. Yeah. Well, you could you could tra- you could trade it all. You know, every ten minutes, you could trade it constantly. Every one. I'm just saying, simplistic, simplistically. If yeah. you're like my very first version is going to trade once a day mm. at 3 p.m. It's going to yeah. run or whatever. And because you know Bitcoin is 24 hours a day anyway. Yeah. And you could just buy or sell it, and uh, and then have a very simple genetic algorithm, and maybe just has 10 features or something like that, and just do that. What I don't like about that the once a day is it it takes a long time for you to iterate. Yeah, well, yeah. that's one of the key. That's well, you hit right away on um, what's great about high frequency trading or, or algorithm trading. You, so, if if you make money and you you make ten trades over ten days, and you're like, is that a sample space to determine if this thing is a good bot? You barely have enough data for yeah. ten days. Now, if I trade throughout the day and I traded thirty times in one day, we're we're getting a pretty good sample. Like we're yeah. learning very quick. I like that. I like that. Let's start there. Let's start with that. Let's start trading at least once every hour, once every half an hour. Yeah, you can just trade more often and yeah, it just looks at the data. I mean, there was an article recently on Hacker News about a guy who did that, used some Bayesian classifier, and they wrote a paper. It was an academic who wrote a paper on it, and they, they, they made money trading Bitcoin yeah. using you know, some kind of Bayesian classification stuff. It's fun. Be fun. All right, I'm glad. I'm, I'm excited. Well, if you, I'm not putting you on the line because you may change your mind tomorrow or whatever. But if you decide to do it, it'd be fun to talk. Well, I've been that's thinking about it. To... All right, so um, and that's me. That's you. <laughs> How long have we been going? An hour already. Yeah. Wow. And I got a lot of stuff to talk about. You, you, you better start talking about some of this. Okay. Stuff. So let's start first. So let's do an update on Operation Superhero. The the number one thing. I'll start with the uh, the good news. The good news is, I about two weeks ago I went up see how high I could jump and I can now touch the rim. So I increased my vertical jump eight inches. Wow. Which is ridiculous. That is ridiculous. And, and honestly, because I initially started working out on this, doing this stuff in around July and then I made some improvement, added a few inches to my vertical and then I pulled my hamstring and I strained my adductor muscle and then I tried this other jump training program. And so I really wasn't making any progress for like 10 weeks. And then about seven or eight, about eight weeks ago, I said, all right, screw it. I'm just going to start doing my own program based on all the research I've done. You know, how I am not invented here. About yeah, I yeah. tried someone else's framework. It didn't work. Yeah, yeah. So I created yeah. my own framework based on first principles and it worked. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And it worked great. I mean, getting eight inches in six weeks is, is almost seems like unbelievable. Like literally, like people listening are like that. He can't have it done. This seems like you should do a blog post. How I increase my vertical jump in six weeks, eight yeah. inches. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, extreme body hacking. So, but the thing is, I have video of the before and after and everything, so you can actually see for yourself. You put it on the the comments, right? The I did. Show. I'll, I'll yeah. put it in the show notes again. But yeah, you can so people can see it for themselves. Um, but so that was amazing. I, I was on a high for that for like three or four days. I was. Just like, <laughs> I can't. I when I went up and jumped because it was like a Friday night. You know, not a lot of people are at the gym. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I just finished kind of doing my warm up stuff and I go up to the gym. There's like one or two guys in the basketball gym shooting around and my buddy, one of them being my buddy, Bobby. I'm like, Hey, I'm like, Bobby, will you, I want to just see how I can jump. Will you just mind taking a little video of it? And he's like, Oh yeah, sure, sure. So I hand him my iPhone. I go up and I jump up and I jump all the way up and touch the rim. And he's just like, Whoa. <laughs> I look around looking, I'm like, Holy crap. Did you see that? And he's like, yeah. Nice. yeah. And, uh, and yeah, so that was amazing. So that's great. The bad thing that happened was, well, was two bad things happened. One is I strained my kind of groin, uh, ligament my groin, mm-hmm. which is my 
a doctor attachment, I think it's called. You, you don't need to actually show me. I mean, I'm just, not, just saying, worry, like, I, I know what it is. And, like... <laughs> <laughs> You're safe. Don't worry. Um, but, uh, yeah, because I had, I, had, I had tried to do these, like, single leg squats, and I was using too much weight and going a little too deep on the squat. And I That's why there's a framework. Well, I just... Uh, I, you know what problem is? I tend to get a little too crazy. Yeah. I get a little too... You stood outside of the framework. You took the risk. Okay, go well, on. Well, it wasn't outside the framework. <laughs> I just pushed too hard. Yeah. And uh, so the problem is now I have to figure out how do I keep making progress or at least not lose ground and let it heal. Without hurting yourself. Because, you know, I, I was talking to the you know, a physical therapist and he's like, yeah, this can take four to 12 weeks to heal if you're not aggravating it. Oh, God. I'm like, I cannot not do squats and stuff. I will lose everything that I've gained. I just psychologically can't take that, you know? And so I'm trying to find some exercises I can do, you know, box squats in place of squats and some other things where I can maybe make some progress hmm. and let it heal and not aggravate it. But it's really, really frustrating. So we'll see. Okay. The, yeah, so, uh, so the, the, the options are A, just keep aggravating it and making progress, but not keep aggravating the, the injury. Okay, that's probably not a great idea. I've been doing that for the last couple of weeks, but we'll see. Option two is totally back off all leg exercises for the next three to four months, or how long it takes, let that groin injury heal, and then start up and pretty much lose all of everything I gained. Psychologically devastating. <laughs> or three, try and find some middle ground work and have a few exercises that may aggravate it a little bit, but not that much, and then I can at least maintain her game. But what about the the thing where it can take a long time to to heal like you know the whole McGough saying like it can it can be like take two weeks for some good exercise to kind of heal itself and repair and you make big gains in that could you do something like that like so if you if you just exercise once a week versus three times a week you're still going to see kind of gains yeah well I only do leg work once every four three to four days I mean I might be able to do that you know um it's possible I could work out something like that I do I mean, like, like, let's let's say you took that to once every two weeks. Like, would you really lose if you did if you did something hardcore, very hardcore, once every two weeks? Would you really lose that much? Two weeks, probably. Maybe not once a week. I don't know. I mean, you could experiment with it. So yeah. it's interesting, and I'll get this in a minute. But everybody's body responds to this stuff a little differently. I see. Okay. Which is weird. You'd think that if you got a fairly homogenous group of people. That, hey, we got all, you know, like when you see these, I read these studies, because I've read so many studies now on different types of exercises, how their effect on speed and jumping ability and leg strength and et cetera, et cetera. And it's like you could have like a group of 20 female Division One volleyball players who have each had two years of strength training and are within 20 to 20 years old. And they can have very, a lot of variance in how much they respond to some lower leg strength training protocol. One person responds incredibly well, like me, like I do my thing, I grab eight, I grab, I, I do my workout and I grab eight inches on my vertical and some people could grab like an inch. So if you would talk to somebody else and they said, oh yeah, I did that kind of thing that Jason's talking about, I'd get like an inch. And if you had never talked to me, you'd be like, oh, it's not worth the effort. When you talk to me and you're like, you did eight inches, that's amazing, right? Hmm. It's just, it's, it's, um, it's frustrating because when I read, when I've read some of these studies and I've looked at, um, 
And I've looked and you look at the mean values, you're like, oh, that's pretty interesting. The mean gain is this amount of strength or this amount. But then when you look at the individual breakdown, you look at the variance, you're like, wow, that's pretty. And so they have them like, what they, what they call them is low responders and high responders. Okay. And so you kind of have to find, what, what the truth that I've discovered based on reading all this research, and I'm, and I'm not talking like I read some article in Muscle and Fitness. I mean, like I read, at the very least, I read the abstract, if not a good portion of the actual research original research on yeah. this thing, um, whether it's doing squats or plyometrics or whatever. And um, the reality is you're going to have low and high gainers and people are going to respond differently. And there are exercises or things that have been shown to work for more people more of the time than not, but it doesn't mean it's going to work for everybody. Hmm. And so like there was this one study where it was doing, people were doing squats and they said, all right, we're going to do a 12 week, um, study on doing heavy squats. One group is going to do one set twice a week. One is going to do four sets twice a week. And one set, one group is going to do eight sets, three reps. Yeah. They had, well, the force, the people who did four sets did like twice as much as the people who did one set, twice as much gain. And the people who did eight sets did like three times, twice, two and a half times what the people who did four sets. So the more you did, like you, you, I mean, you know, maybe if you did twelve sets, you did more. What does a set? What does a set mean? Is that you do three rep? You'd go do three reps, and you take a break for like three but minutes. When you say so, twice a week. So they, they were all doing it twice a week. Yeah, and it was the the number of sets that you did twice a week. So huh. there was a huge variance. So there was a lot of variance. I mean, there was a big difference on the in between the averages. Four yeah. a week was way better than had way bigger better response, much bigger strength gains than one than people did one set. The people who did eight sets had much much bigger than people did four weeks and four four sets and way way more than people did one. How set. many how many one set is just up down? No, that's that's one rep. Oh. One, two, three, stop. That's a set of three repetitions. Okay, so every and set you, it's always three three. In this study. In this study, in this study. Some people did five. You know, a lot of times some people do five, six to eight, ten reps. Whatever. Okay. So the ones, so, yeah, so when so, they did ten, they but did. But this was a great study that demonstrated, because I read a lot of this deep in discussion and, and about it, and uh, it was just fascinating because there was so much variance. But then when you looked at the people who did one set, there were people who did the one set who were huge responders, who, who gained a lot of strength just by doing one set. But then there were also people in the, who did eight sets who didn't gain that much. So you could go and you'd be those people who did one set and you're like, wow, I got so much stronger. I did one set. Where are the guys that did? I did that and it didn't work at all. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's that's why it's you. careful to look at the mean without looking at the variance. Yeah. And so I was looking at this stuff. I'm like, that's really interesting. And so that's why you have to try things out, experiment with them while and say, well, I don't know if this is really working for me. What's the mean? The, the mean is the, the center of the, the Yeah. That's, so, so you don't want to find the center. You want to find the... There's well, the other one. Like it's it's the be, it's how the, wide, the bell curve. The center of the bell curve is yeah. the mean, right? Right. And sort of how wide it is is represented by the variance. I see. Okay. You know, so if it's really wide, you get a lot of variance. If it's narrow, it's not a lot of variance. So anyway, the other thing that was kind of dis- depressing is I went and I got an updated body composition. Right. After six weeks. I I went, I think, and you know, I had been eating a little bit more as per Sarah Lynn, my nutritionist, had suggested she, she wanted me to, when I checked in with her last, for this last six-week um, uh, period of time, she said, I want you to cut your cardio down a little bit, and I want you to up your, your, your calories. So I did that. And I, I, in the previous six weeks, I had lost six pounds and put on two and a half pounds of muscle. 
this time I figured, ah, you know, I probably put on two and a half, three pounds of muscle because I was lifting a lot, eating a little bit more. And I figured I may have lost a pound or two of fat. Well, I walked in, no change. I did not, I did not lose a single ounce of fat. I did not put an ounce of muscle. I was like six weeks and that was it. Nothing. <laughs> and I had really worked hard. Yeah, that's, that must suck. I was like, come on. You know, I mean, look, I've lost 20. I probably lost uh, 23 pounds of fat and put on three pounds of muscle in total. Mm-hmm. So I can't be too depressed because I'm, are you so are you still working really hard now I after am, that one? I yeah. am. But, you know, I'm just so I can't like I'm just saying I can't be too down about it. But I'm just yeah. saying what happens is after and this is what she was saying and and, and is also in, in agreeing with what I've read a lot about is that when you lose when your body changes a lot, it starts to try and reach your body adapts. And it starts to and adapts your metabolism adapts and everything adapts. And so my body, I think, had adapted to the calories and to the exercise. And so it was just kind of reached what, you know, it's trying to maintain homeostasis. So he's like, all right, we need to change some things up. And I said, all right, well, here's the thing. Like, I need to take a break from the dieting stuff. Like, I need to, I, I don't mind if I don't lose any more fat for a while because I'm down pretty low. Not as low as I ultimately want to go, but, you know, I'm a 32-inch waist. That's, You're just kind of sick of, like, not being able to eat stuff. Well, I want to put on some muscle. Yeah, right, okay. I want to get stronger. I want to dunk. So I want to put on some muscle on my my glutes and my thighs and my hamstrings and you know i i could live with losing a mental model fat over the six months as long as i'm getting stronger and putting on muscle and she's like okay. i said i'm just kind of i can go back and cut later you know i can go and do a month long where i'm just gonna lower my calories and, and try and lose four or five pounds of fat because i know how to do that now but i need to take a break and she's like all right well, we'll do that so she's all right like up your calories five eat 500 more calories a day cut out the all the cardio except for once a week and just lift like crazy so that's what i'm doing now Okay. Which is a little easier. I tell you what, it's a lot easier to just eat and lift. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was a little worried because we just went, you know, we just got back from Thanksgiving and, you know, a lot of turkey and... How are you oh, feeling internally? I feel great. Yeah, but apart from the, that one strain, you feel, but you're feeling... Oh, I mean, I feel great. I was walking around, I was saying the other day, I was like, I feel like I'm made out of fucking stone. <laughs> you know, I know, she's like laughing. She's kind of, I mean, like all the muscles in my body because I'm lifting so much. I just, yeah. I mean, it was a couple of days after lifting, like your all the muscles are kind of a little tight, a little bit sore, but you're just like, I feel strong. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, Funny. and she just kind of rolled her eyes at me, but I'm like, you know, but I, yeah, I mean, I feel great. How, so how's Phil doing? He's doing great. He's, what, what was his latest? Uh... Oh my God. Like he's, he's, squatting like 280 pounds and he's still trying to bench 225 which he still hasn't made yet but he's working on it. he's he's getting stronger right he's i mean the key thing is for him is i mean he's working hard and he's staying but he only lifts three days a week mm. for an hour so it's not like it's like crazy it's just so he's he's the one he's the one who doesn't have to do a lot no well no those hour-long sessions are really hard yeah so it's not like you have to live at the gym you know like a lot of times people you look at someone's really fit it's like oh but that guy spends all his day all, every day all day at the gym it's like no no just go three days a week for an hour and work hard and it's all it takes but most people can't even do that so you probably want to hear a little update from me about where, where i'm at with this stuff i do and i just i want to say uh one of the things i would say the key thing with phil though is that he has a trainer a strength conditioner yeah, right, right. that he works out with who has everything planned out for him and He's imagining a coach that works with you and says, we're going to add, we're going to double, triple your strength in the next six months, or we're going to do this, this, and this. And it's just, I mean, I think that helps a lot. So you? So me, um, continuing with my tradition of being the laughing stock of weight loss. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> changing from one concept to another. Well, the thing is, like, as a, as a developer, as a programmer, and, and uh, you know me as a person, like, I if something doesn't work, I just try something different, and I I do try and I iterate on everything in my life. That's just the way I'm. That's why I'm a good programmer, right? Because I just throw so much shit at the wall and I find out what works. And I just feel like this whole weight loss and muscle gain thing is the same for me. And I have, haven't got there yet. I got my little silver platform thing that I tried using, right? So I feel what, what, has, what is working is the half an hour weights a week. That, I feel like that's working. I feel like... One piece of that's We got one thing that is working. I've got one thing that's working, which is I'm building muscle. And I'm really enjoying building muscle. What I feel like is not working is weight loss and cutting fat and basically cardio or what, what, whatever it takes to, to cut that. And I have a new experiment to try. Um, but Georgie is so pissed off with me that I now have to, to even try this experiment, I have to do a certain thing for two months before she'll even let me try this experiment. So, so the, I'll, I'll talk through what my experiment is. So I've got the high intensity piece that's really working. What's, what doesn't seem to work for me is the medium intensity, which is the stuff that you do, like just the, just the generally going to the gym and like working out and all that kind of stuff. So I want to try out a combination of very high intensity and very low intensity with a walking desk where you basically walk and work all day long, every day. Yeah. That's my new experiment. Well, you never did the medium intensity for any length of time. Never did what? You never did the medium and test. I know because like but for, you did for, for like one. You, I agree. I agree. So for whatever, it doesn't work. You just don't want it. The, the, the point is, is my my brain doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work with that. Like there's the 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 pleasure circuit is too well ingrained. Like the the lazy loop is just so embedded in my brain. I just can't like. You're trying to eliminate every other possibility, but doing that to lose weight. Well, you're going to try everything else <laughs> except for the thing that's most likely to succeed, which is get your butt to the gym. And I, I understand. I, I understand. That's what it sounds like. And that's why I'm the laughing stock of the show about this stuff. But anyway, the, there's a, the evidence points to, um, walking desk. You walk at like one mile an hour. You, it's very slow. It's like walking down a hallway. Like it's not, it's not major. The the, the point about it is, is that when you sit down at your desk, you burn like 10 calories an hour, something really ridiculous. When you even just standing up, you burn more calories. And then just walking at a very slow pace, just being in movement, it brings you up to like 100 calories an hour. You burn 100 calories an hour. So over a, over a four to six hour day, that's like, you know, f- about 500 calories extra. So you just basically burn an extra two and a half thousand calories a week just by using this thing. Now, so what does Georgie say about this? Well, she, what she says is she says that, and rightly so, that I've tried so many things and that I never stick with anything, that she doesn't believe that I'm going to use this thing. So we're going to get this thing and it's going to make her house look not very nice. Yeah. And I'm never going to use it. So she's got, she said, if you can walk every morning for a proper like hour walk every morning for two months, then you can get a walking desk. I think that's a fair thing. <laughs> Well, because, you know, it's a wheels. I'm looking at your house. I'm like, where the hell are you going to put this? <laughs> well, it, it's going to go in the office. It would fit in the office. I've already measured it. Barely. Up. Yeah. But uh, it's going to be this big. So, so yeah, well, I, hey, so I, really want, I really want to try it. So I've been doing this walk every day and I'm going to do this walk every day for two months. And it really irritates me that I have to do it, but I'm going to do it. So, so how long have you been walking for now? Two days. 
<laughs> a full hour? <laughs> well, I just need to go out and do like a proper either half an hour to an hour walk every day. So a half hour to hour, which you yeah. which you translate to a half hour, which actually means 20 minutes? No, 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 no. I, I will do a proper walk every and day. what have you done for the last two days? How long? Probably half an hour. <laughs> but that's because I was with her. Oh, like she didn't want to do an hour. After an hour, yeah, she's like, yeah. right, you know. Well, she needs to just bail out at that point. So right now you do another loop. <laughs> so, I mean, I think the main point is, is to just go out there and do something every day to prove that I can do it for two months to show that I really do deserve to try this other experiment. Right. Okay, fine. That's where I'm at. Cool. Hey, so I actually something related that I want to talk about. Okay, go on. Which I'm fascinated with. I was fascinated about. So um, I read this article... It was talking about the do-it-yourself biohacking movement. You know, there's yeah. things, everything from, you know, people embedding chips in their body to the people who are quantified self-stuff. Everybody's tracking how many calories they burn in their heart rate and, you know, and the whole range of biohacking. And this one was about um, this guy who, who, he wrote a blog post about um, improve, increasing your IQ. And yeah. it's based on there. It's based on some uh, a number of um, some research that came out that said it. It seems to be possible that you can increase your IQ by increasing your working memory. So, hmm. and that he using a program um, called uh, Dual and Back. So, imagine a uh, a grid of squares, like a three by three grid of squares, tacto thing. And every second there's whatever, like a letter appears in one of them, D, F, G. And then you have to answer what was the second one back, two ago. Mm. That'd be two mm. back. G, F, okay, G. Yeah, <laughs> you know, okay, you, you're going to keep track of two back. And then also it does an audio verse. There's audio as well as visual. So you heard, you'll have some, I guess, a voice saying a letter. And then you have to keep track of which one is two back. And then once you can master two back, you go to three back. Back, it's like the game memory that my girls play, yeah, yeah, correct. And um, it's very cognitively difficult, it's, it's, it's hard to do. And you do it for 20 minutes a day, apparently. And they did this study that was, and it wasn't for that long, it was like four or five weeks, four weeks, I think it was 20 sessions. And um, what happened was they took a test, an IQ test of four was a Raven's progressive matrices, which is sort of the um, gold standard for, for testing what is sort of the underlying core component of IQ, which is our G, Spearman's G, also known as your fluid intelligence, your reasoning and logic. Like that's the core of, how, of your intelligence. And, it's, and there's another paper I read, I read recently which said that is almost directly correlated to your ability to solve difficult problems. Like difficult, uh, you know, kind of you know, math problems or whatever. So working, and, and it's a working memory is, is super correlated with your intelligence. So the more sort of pieces of, uh, that you can juggle in your brain, hmm. the, the harder the problems you can solve and, the, and also the quicker you can learn. Turns out, I was reading about this too, like how um, your learning rate is related to your IQ, which of course, as we said, is very correlated to your working memory. So if you can increase your IQ 15 points, which is roughly one standard deviation, you can increase your learning uh, a rate by 70%. So someone who has an IQ of 115 learns 15, uh, 70% faster than someone with an IQ of 100. Someone who has an IQ of 130 is, is again, like another, it's like 
you know, whatever, three point, it was 0.28, or I guess it's 0.28. So you're almost three times as fast. <clears throat> Did you see the thing on Hacker News about meditating? Wait, hold on, right? hold on, hold on, what's that? hold on a sec. I can't, remember, I can't remember how it works. So anyway, but they turn out that if you have an IQ of like 160 or whatever, I mean, you're learning like five, six, seven times as fast. You'd, if you get, and if you get people who are like IQs like 190, 200, you can, you could theoretically learn 20 to 40 times faster than a normal person, right? So Amazing. No, I, I, let me go with this. Why I know about the whole meditating thing. Well, because I, I, it seems to it seems to uh, support this. Like it, it it increases the working memory. So if you did those two things in conjunction, that would be incredible. I don't know. I think that's meditation stuff's kind of whatever. I mean, there hasn't been a lot of. Uh, wasn't it a Harvard study though? Uh. Anyway, I yeah. I I don't care about the meditation stuff. I I don't I, I don't think that that's as significant. And I think it's. I don't really buy that. But even then, I haven't even researched it, so I don't know. It was it was on Hacker News? Like they they literally. I, know. I was on Hacker News. I read, I read the their brain read shape the, changed. They had more gray matter after eight weeks of meditation. Wow. Yeah. 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 So, okay. but what I do believe is that you know your brain is not is malleable, just like your muscles are in your nervous system, because your brain is part of your nervous system, mm-hmm. right? And the studies they show that that they've done different studies to figure out like how much of your IQ is inherited, nature versus nurture. And depending on how old you are, it can range between 0.4 to 0.8 correlation. So, or 0.85, but basically by the time you're an adult, your IQ is about 85, is 85% correlated with your parents' IQ. Does that make sense? Mm. So, but because we have different learning developmental trajectories, your IQ might be upper, higher, lower at certain ages. Um, but by the time you finish maturing, your IQ is very similar to what your parents is Sim- in, in the same ballpark. So, um, but that means that there's a 15% malleability um, of your IQ, right? So you have, they have these twin studies. So one twin grew up in a, in a family or an environment where it was where very potentially intellectually stimulating or there's more cognitive load. So they were a little, they tested a little higher IQ and vice versa. Okay. But what's interesting is I think that's like saying, how much is higher is your vertical jump because you play basketball? You're not really working on your vertical jump. You're doing things that might put more stress on your muscles and make you a little more, but it's not you're really aggressively trying to increase your vertical. Does that make sense? Hmm. So just like, so because people who play basketball versus people who don't, if you took, you, you probably, you took two twins, you'd probably, the person who played basketball might jump an inch or two higher, a couple inches higher, maybe three inches higher. Not maybe, you know, 10%, 15% higher, nothing massive. But as we've seen in my, I've seen for myself, you go and do heavy squats, you work on a very fundamental quality, like your posterior strength. I get eight inches on my vertical, but eight you, inches. But you just said yourself, that's, that's if you're a high adapter or, you know, or versus a low adapter. It doesn't mean you're a higher or lower adapter to anything. To, ever, to, to, to everything, it just means the, the thing that worked for you. Right, right. right? Okay, I see. Um, so what I'm saying, obviously, I, I was a high adapter for the thing that I tried. I mean, I, I did, I told you I did another jumping program for, for four weeks and I did nothing. Didn't work for me at all. I, because it was, the weights were too light, the lifting was too frequent, the reps were too high. I felt, I think that's why. I don't know, I can't tell you exactly why I work, but I, I get to feel it. I'm like, I just don't think this is working for me, you know? And I, and I, and because of my experience lifting these four, I knew that I get stronger lifting heavier weights with lower reps and taking longer breaks to recover, taking five days to recover and not two. Okay. Anyway. The bottom line is, I'm like, okay, so if we can say that 
your brain, depending on your environment, can affect your IQ. And then we can go work on a fundamental quality of your IQ, which would be like your working memory. Your working memory is to your IQ um, like your explosiveness is to your athleticism. And working on the dual NBAC algorithm uh, training program, I was like doing heavy squats. It's mm. heavy cognitive load that's forcing your body to adapt. And it, one thing I think we've learned as humans is that your body adapts. And there's this principle in strength training called the said principle, specific adaptation to imposed demands. Your body will adapt to, to what you're imposing onto it. Okay? If you want to get stronger, you lift really heavy weights. You know, um, you want to be able to run a marathon, you run long distances, right? You, would, you put the kind of demands on that you want your body to adapt to. So I'm thinking, so I'm looking at this and I'm like, well, I'm a little skeptical. But then I start thinking, okay, they only did this for like four or five weeks and they, and they already saw that these kids' IQs increased by three or four or five IQ points. You know, and they had a large group of kids and they accounted for, you know, these different types of error. And then they did, and then there was a, there, it's, it's fairly controversial because there was another paper that came out and said that they, they one, there are a couple of papers that came out that came, or studies that were done that replicated the results with slightly, and replicated with slightly different training methods and slightly different uh, before and after testing methods. And then there was one that, um, but then one came out and said that this isn't, that, that they couldn't replicate it. But then they did a meta-analysis of another 20 some odd studies. And they said, even when they accounted for all these differences and they gave it extra discounting it for error, that they still noticed that there was a significant and not a statistically significant increase in their IQ and their cognitive ability. So I'm thinking this would be an interesting thing to try. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, I've already proved yeah. to myself I can add inches to my vertical and I just got started. I mean, I'm hoping to add at least another eight to 10, eight to 12 inches over the next year. And I'm wondering if you could do the same thing by doing dual end back training. So there's, there's a couple of programs you can download to do this. And so I was telling Colby about it. Colby's like, I want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. I mean, I'd like to try that too. It's like the, um, the movie Limitless, you know, it's like, you know, because this one guy who wrote the, um, who wrote the original blog post about it said that he, Increased his IQ eight because he took the IQ test before and after eighteen point eighteen IQ points. Mm. And what happened is also so. Not only did you get better at the end back training, so he initially was doing like two or three back, then he got up to like seven or eight back he could do. But and I did it did it transfer over to progress, Raven's progressive matrices, the IQ test. But he took eight months off to see what effect, and he said. Right away, like after a couple of days, and he, he didn't drop that much. And then he dropped, went even above where he was before. <laughs> so it was kind of like your brain adapts, sets new neural pathways or whatever. But it's kind of like you're, um, it's like working out. Like if you go and do a lot of strength training and then you take six months off, you'll lose some of it, but you'll get back within a few weeks pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. You'll get probably 70 or 80% of it back probably in three weeks and within six weeks you'll get all back even if it took you like a year two years to get there in the first place hmm. and most people i know who say lift a lot of weights when they were younger in college and went from bench pressing 135 to benching 250 or 300 pounds the first few days back they're like oh yeah this is so heavy i mean they're still way stronger than they were when they before they started lifting weights yeah but it doesn't take them more than like you know six weeks to get most of the way back so i'm thinking the same thing might be true i'm i you know, that sounds cool. I'd be worth an experiment. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'd be up for that. I mean, just think about it. I mean, it's like one thing. I mean, I mean, it is for me, obviously, being able to increase my strength to the point where I could dunk a basketball is like a dream come true. We've talked about that. But imagine if you can increase your IQ 
20 to 30 points over a period of six months. Be awesome to make better decisions. You would be able to learn weight. Your learning weight would be four, five, you know, four times faster. Learning weight. I like that. Your learning rate, yeah. Did, did you, you say learning weight? Learning rate. Well, it sounded like learning weight, which I thought was kind of cool because it's like my learning weight's 400 pounds. You know, I can bench 400 pounds with my learning weight. I yeah. know. It's, <laughs> it's your learning rate. So your learning rate. So, in, you know, it's, in Sandy and Hyde, you know, it's interesting because doing the math theme, you know, there are kids in there who are like, you know, you can tell some kids you think they probably have slightly higher IQs. I mean, they're all bright. They're all gifted and talented, but there's some kids you think okay, these kids have a little higher IQs than the other kids because... The reality is like, you don't have to explain it to them as many times as they get it. The other kids need more explanation. They need more. So are you thinking maybe if you could get those, those kids to do that as well? Well, you know, I was talking to Colby. Colby's like, we should have the whole math team do this. Yeah. And, and I said, well, I said, why don't I just do it first? He's like, well, I want to do it. I'm like, all right, all right. All right. How about you and I? He's like, I'm your guinea pig. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I'm like, all right. So how about you and I do it? And then if it works for us, well, and he's like, you know, then we'll, then we'll propose doing it if, they, if the kids want to do it. That's great, yeah. Because I don't want to say, well, I read these blog posts and I read these research papers and I think this might be worth trying. It's just like reading about vertical jump training. It's a lot more credible when I say, well, hey, you want to see this video made before and after? Yeah. And yeah. It's like you can't really argue like, holy crap, yeah, I see yeah. it. You know, you did say, it. well, I had an IQ of X and now I have an IQ of X plus 30. People be like, that is amazing, <laughs> right? How did you do that? Because it's like, because it's like everything I was telling Colby, I'm like, not only would you have much more greater problem solving capacity, but the length of time it takes us to learn stuff would be dramatically reduced. You would have to do much less homework because <laughs> you just get it. You like yeah, free practice yeah. like I get it. And we've noticed that with the kids in the class who probably different IQ at most by 10 to 15 points between the, the most extreme, the highest IQ and lowest IQ kid. Like I said, they're all gifted, but there's a range. And the kids at the higher end, you explain it to them once or twice again. At the lower end, they need a, they need a few more iterations, you know, mm -hmm. and they forget it more quickly. I'm like, wow, if we could get everybody a 15, 20 point IQ boost over, you know, because over like, I don't know, a few months of work, a couple months. I mean, I don't know. It'd be fun, wouldn't it? Yeah, sounds great. So can I give you an update on the math team? Yeah, do. Um, so George is going to be here to pick me up uh, pretty soon. So how long, how long we got? it's four. Uh, we're, we're done. We're done? Yeah. That time? Well, I'll just say this one thing is that we did a parent information night. Yeah. Uh, last week. And because I wanted, basically I'm trying to convince all of the, um, families to keep their kids at McKinley. Mm -hmm. McKinley is a K through eighth grade, but a lot of parents are thinking of putting their kids in these other schools that are sixth grade through 12th grade. There's one Marshall that's really ranked one of the top schools in the LA area. And, and, um, you know, and there's another one called Blair that has some things going for it. And I'm just thinking, look, so basically we had a big meeting and I said, listen, this is what we're doing here is really special. It's not just an honors class. It's not just a math team. We're, these kids are going to be so far ahead and they'll be so good in a couple more years that it's something really worth considering. So that's what we're in the process of right now. Um, what, do people, what do parents think? Well, all the parents, we had a big, long discussion about it. And a lot of the parents were really, really, I mean, they love the math program. Yeah. They're very appreciative of us and they love it. But they're weighing, it's really the math program versus every other consideration. Yeah. Because as far as most of concerned, McKinley really hasn't, as far as the middle school, doesn't have much going for it. So they're just like, do we go to Marshall and we have all of, we have this and this and this and all this stuff. And then plus their older brother, sister goes there and da, da, and they're yeah. locked in through high school. Or do we stay at McKinley, which is, doesn't even have a principal and middle school doesn't have much going for it. It's kind of nothing. And it's only for what Jason and Sandy are doing with the math team. 
And a lot mm. of them, it's, it's a tough choice. Yeah, I bet it is. So, um, and, but the, one, one of the parents had talked about and suggested, and now we had a big discussion about this, is what if we move the entire program over to Marshall? Mm. So I'm going to go meet with the principal next week and talk to him about that possibility. The problem is, is like, it takes a lottery system to get into the school. Very competitive. Oh, yeah. So we're going to be like, okay, I mean. Well, so, they'll have to accept everyone from the your class. Well, they have to say, well, I think a couple of the kids are, are have like sibling preference or their older sibling goes, so they automatically get in. And there might be a couple of people who are already assigned to that. They're, that's their home school. So it might only be a matter of six or so kids who yeah. guarantee a spot. And I, I don't know. I don't even know. But there's such outliers. You should be able to say to the principal, look, you can have all these outliers in the school. Going to be great for the school. Yeah, it'll be a question of whether there's a way that we can. Um, if they buy it, if if they if we can, if there is some mechanism within the lottery to make it work out, you know. But I don't know. Yeah. Otherwise, it's going to be tough because I think at least half the class. We have 13 kids. At least half of them are going to probably bail. And uh, even though they know they're they're giving up a lot with the math stuff we're doing, I think that there's just. There's just too much that McKinley doesn't have going for it that these other schools do. And they just were like, well, <laughs> you know, they're already going to be really advanced. We've already boosted them so far ahead. They're like, okay, they're already three or four years ahead in math. We'll just it's gonna, we'll yeah. slot them in, you know, in, in advanced trigonometry as a seventh grader or as a sixth grader. <laughs> and then we'll get everything else we want. Right. So I think some parents might go for that, but we'll see. Put an update on that next. Well, I guess I'll save my interesting links for another show. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All, All right. right. <laughs> That's a wrap. We're out.